you might have you might have changed my mind on this. Heard it here first. Shai Halud is marriage potential. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, happy Halloween. That's right. Uh, you are Cassidy Robinson, and a happy Hallows Eve to you as well. Mm-hmm. We're technically recording this before the Halloween weekend, but this should be coming out the Monday after. And the review- I, I feel like... Halloween season, though, in general, uh, in the last like five years has been expanding further and further into September. Like, mm. I feel like Halloween used to just be a month and maybe this is just how I celebrate, but I'm like, I'm gonna, I don't know. I feel like I start getting the itch for the spookies, uh, you know, around early September and then it starts to kind of like die off, uh, until like the last week and a half of October. And then it's like, boom, back. Truth be told, I have not been feeling the reason for the season lately. Like as far as Halloween's go, I haven't been going out of my way to consume as much Halloween or horror media outside of the stuff we do for the podcast than I usually okay. do. But it's, you know, it's, it's starting to hit a little bit. Like, but generally speaking, like, you know, on my off time, I watched, uh, Practical Magic for the first time just cause I was like, eh, what the fuck? I mean, okay. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. No, you know, <laughs> and, and I've seen some cool stuff and, We've talked about some cool stuff here on the podcast, too, so it's been doing the job as well. Uh, if you want something real fun, mm-hmm. uh, check out Mike Flanagan's new series on Netflix, uh, Fall of the House of Usher. Right, which that, that just uh, came out a little while ago. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's properly creepy. I think it is my favorite Flanagan series so far. Right. It's creepy without being too scary and it's just very addictive. So you can binge it. And you know, it's like a one single use thing. It's, it's only like eight episodes and that's it. It's just a mini series. Um, and once it's done, it's done. But, um, yeah, check that out and see if that doesn't help, uh, rouse the demons. Well, we don't have to go that far, but. Uh, on this episode, we're going to be reviewing Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. And for the last, uh, horror-themed streaming homework, friend of the show, Ted Bonman, had us review One Cut of the Dead, which is streaming exclusively on Shudder right now. The, uh, Japanese, uh, zombie film of sorts. And we'll, We'll get in the ins and outs of that. Yeah. Um, but again, just as a brain teaser, just to get the neurons firing, we're going to do it again. We're going to play another game of fuck, marry, kill. (laughs) 
movie monster worms. Whoa, okay. We have uh-huh. the Graboids from uh-huh. the movie Tremors. We have the Sandworms from Beetlejuice that are from the uh, moons of Saturn, I believe. And we have Shai Hulud, the psychic sandworm in Dune. Woo! Okay, this is a challenging one. Um, all right, I'm going to say... Fuck Shai Halud, because that it just looks like a giant butthole, right? Uh, Those could be teeth. They don't really say. There's been lots of designs, by the way, and I I was struggling in which one mm -hmm. I was going to feature. Would I go with the with the David Lynch one or the ones from the book covers? You know, they're pretty. I mean, they're they're they share a common theme though of being a Giant, giant sandworm. Worm. I, yeah. I do feel the Denis Villeneuve design looks the most like a big old 30 foot brown eye. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say fuck that one. Okay. Uh, Mary, the sandworms of Saturn, uh, because they have some nice aesthetic qualities. I feel like uh, you know, you could design a house with this sure. giant worm. Um, uh, it's artsy. Um, you know, it, it might be bipolar, uh, based off the two headedness of it. Um, but I just feel like it seems the easiest to domesticate. And uh, kill the Graboids from Tremors because I think it looks the most like a real gross bug. Yeah, I I, I think my order is exactly the same, although for <laughs> different reasons. I want to kill the Graboid because you got those like snake tongues with the horns. Yeah, they're pretty uh, nasty. Yeah, they're going to, you know, just coil you in and and devour you and yeah i mean i don't even like totally understand the anatomy of it it's it's um see that that's the one that i feel like i i technically understand the anatomy the most of like i i feel like it seems the most like a like a real fucking gross ass creature yeah 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 uh but it seems the most dangerous and like, there's no bargaining with it. I know. You're all about survival. Well, that is, that is how the game is played for me. Um, I, yes, I'm going to marry the, the what, the Sandworms of Saturn from Beetlejuice, mostly because of the one scene, uh, near the end of the film where, yeah. uh, Gina Davis rides in on it, which that assumes some sort of ability to cooperate with it and have well, some yeah, sort of that's partnership. What I'm I, I feel like it's the easiest to domesticate. It is the, mm-hmm. it is of all of these giant worms. I also feel like it's the smallest. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long it is, but it's certainly the skinniest. You can get yeah. your legs around it. Uh, and 
I'm going to, in air quotes, fuck Shihalud. I mean, I don't think you possibly could. It's just enormous. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like trying to have sex with a, with a skyscraper or something. I mean, you could jerk off while writing it, right? Yeah, but I mean, you could do that with anything. I think more <laughs> so specifically, it's, I'm thinking it has the powers of the spice. It uh-huh. is psychic and it has the most, um, ability to sort of communicate and understand humans. So I, yeah, it's, it's I don't definitely think, the most intelligent. I, I think whatever sort of copulation you were to create with Shihalud, it would be more something in the mind and, yeah. and breathing in weird spice and having some sort of like drug fueled crazy fantasy sex. But yeah, you've almost convinced me that this is team marriage though, because I, <laughs> I think that it is the most intelligent. It would be the most, it, it's the most capable of communication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the least amount of dumb animal. Yeah. I mean, it's technically in their culture, a god, basically. Yeah. You might have you might have changed my mind on this. Heard it here first. Shai Halud is marriage potential. Yeah, I think I mean, obviously still kill the graboid. Like we yeah, were both in easiest. agreement there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe fuck the sandworm of Saturn and or let it fuck me. I don't know <laughs> uh, how sandworms go. Uh, and then yeah, I think I might marry Shia Halud. All right. With that. (laughs) (laughs) What a uh, transition. Yeah. Uh, Let's go ahead and start talking about uh, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. I saw over the weekend. I assume you probably did, too. Yeah, Um, I think think I saw it on Sunday. One of the most anticipated films of the year. Uh, A lot of press going into it. Coming out of it, surrounding it. Uh, do you want me to set it up? I can if you like. Sure. So essentially, this takes place in the early turn of the century, between the nineteenth, uh, twentieth uh, century, um, in Oklahoma. With I, th- the- I think it's post World War One, right? Because um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, I think, is a veteran of World War One. Yes, but there's a bit of a prologue to that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it kind of gives you context of everything that's going on in this community, but this- it, And it, it does take place over what feels like, um, a significant amount of time. It's not just- Right. Like a weekend. 25, 30 year period of time that yeah. the story spans. Um, but, uh, Originally, what we see in the prologue is that the Osage Nation, um, the natives were driven out of different places in America. I think at one point they were in Kansas. And as the European settlers start to take over more and more land, um, building across the nation, uh, manifest destiny, all of that, they eventually settle on 
this arid desert landscape, uh, sort of grassy, uh, Oklahoma land where, where they there's feel, seemingly nothing. Yeah. Where they, where they feel like they can really sort of flourish and, and, uh, be unencumbered by settlers until they discover o- a, a giant reservoir of oil underneath them, which mm-hmm. begins the saga where the Osage nation and it's this really kind of fascinating uh thing of history that I wasn't aware of, but um for some time were very, very wealthy because they had access and their lineage directly connected to these oil reserves mm-hmm. and the way that their culture works, uh the fortunes run through the women. Where these Individual families have head rights to, uh, like, you know, a, a specific amount of this oil money. Yeah, depending on you, where their land is and how much oil they have access to. And, yeah, and they, they are marrying into these families to get access to this oil money. Yes, and uh, we first meet Leonardo DiCaprio. Like you said, he just came home from the war. He's a little rattled. Uh, you know, as far as characters go, he's not too bright. So he moves into this area to work underneath his uncle, who's played by uh, uh, Robert De Niro. And his uncle has ingratiated himself upon this this area by funding housing and schools and things like that and sort of modernizing the area so that he can bring in more and more white settlers and colonizers to marry into these these uh these families and create well, I, a pipeline directly to him to create a a means to wealth and what well, ends so- up happening is that he calls upon all of these these guys who are sort of playing second fiddle in their family um to marry into money and then one by one by one there starts to be this string of you know quote unquote mysterious deaths where the women of these tribes die of illnesses or die of depression or die of uh uh suicide and um uh Ernest played by Leonardo DiCaprio uh we get this this kind of interaction between him and and Robert De Niro almost you know in the first 10 minutes of the film where he says hey how do, how do you like Molly this this girl that they're all sort of aware of um, who's close with Robert De Niro and his family. And it's pretty clear that he's suggesting that he marries into her family. And things start to come ahead, start to come to a head when her sisters and her mother end up in these tragic events as well. And yeah, this- Mo- Molly is sort of the end of a string of of pearls, right? Where right all of the all of her family starts dying off to the point where 
she is set to sort of inherit everything for Leonardo DiCaprio's character to take that all away and funnel it directly to De Niro. Right. And, you know, she already has health complications, being a diabetic during a time like Mm -hmm. before there's a lot of medication for that. Like we, we see like the beginning stages of like insulin being talked about and things like that. Of course, all the doctors are funded by, uh, De Niro's character, Hale. Yeah, the, the, the whole community is, uh, right. So all I was going to say is he comes from a different line of money. He has like a cattle ranch, Mm -hmm. uh, where the funds have more of an expiration date than this oil money. Um, so you get the sense that he invested heavily in this community so that later on he would sort of live off of the dividends. Right, which is his, his plan going in. And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting role, um, for him in this movie, particularly because he's the, the most driven and the most um Machiavellian. You know, there is there's mm-hmm. elements of this film that belong to the crime genre. There's elements yeah. to this film that belong to the Western, but Scorsese kind of subverts both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh one of the things he does to sort of subvert the crime genre aspect of it. Cause you could look at him as sort of a godfather type with his, his soldiers that he sends out to do his bidding for, you know, riches or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that one of the things that's interesting about this movie is, you know, it's Scorsese who has done the crime movie. You know, he's done the definitive version of the crime movie over and over and over again. Yeah. He's perfected it. Yeah, and this is a subversion of it because mm-hmm. it's unlike other Scorsese movies, it doesn't uh sort of glamorize the 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 sort of crime world, right? Like like none of these guys come away from this looking cool whereas no, you know in Casino and in like Goodfellas and stuff like <laughs> There's sort of a cool element to it, like, oh, we figured out the system and and we're working around it. This but the way this is portrayed is ghoulish and gruesome and you know, exactly what it is is it, it, these fucking dipshits exploiting the wealth of a community that exists. Right. And they, they look parasitic. The crimes are brutal and unglamorized. Um, it's sort of an inversion of the crime story as we know it, right? Like none of these characters are held up on a pedestal. They, they, they look like idiots and it just, Pieces of shit, you know, that, that get away with things based off of just who they're surrounded by and nobody giving a shit. 
the, the you know the fact that so many people die of all of these conveniences and there's no investigation there's no hint of foul play even though it the way it's portrayed it seems obvious from the third person's perspective that like right there is a disease and it is these white men in the community well on one hand they do know that i mean there's a really important scene where the yeah the tribal council kind of comes together at once, you know, there's a particularly horrific murder involving a bomb that was placed. And, and by that point, there's no, you can't call anything an accident anymore. Um, and they decide they're going to travel to Washington DC to try and bring federal investigation into it. And that kind of ends up being what the third act is about, but, Mm-hmm. But you get these great conversation of these of these elders really just, you know, speaking very frankly and very exactly about what what's happening in this town where they call, you know, the white men who have settled there and married into the, these families mm-hmm. vultures and they're just circling. Yeah. And then brilliantly you pan right over to De Niro's character King Hale, who's sitting there with them, and it's right underneath their nose. Yeah, I'm gonna f- fund this, uh, investigation myself, which really, as an audience member, we know he's gonna do everything he can to rat fuck it. But, well, it, they, exi- they exactly wanna believe like- that he's, that he is this benevolent protector, even that though I think they it- know he isn't. <laughs> That scene in particular, I, I was, I think is brilliant. It yeah. is shot so well. Uh, the, the acting in it is incredible. Like the way it cuts to De Niro and DiCaprio as it's talking about these, these, this parasite upon their community and they're talking directly to the people that are preying on them. And, and, and. I wouldn't even say subtly talking to no. the audience. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that the, you know, the movie is, um, is really holding up a mirror to, to, uh, well, and it, you know, modern Western times. culture. And, and I, this is one of the best films I've seen that perfectly describes why you can't separate uh, class politics with, uh, intersectionality. Like, sure. if, yeah, if you are a class reductionist where you mm-hmm. just think we don't want to talk yeah, about, if, if money's the answer, then once you have money, you're fine. You're part of the one percent or whatever, right? But, but in this case, this is a community of money. They, right. they are what you would consider old money. You know, they they have been born into these families of oil wealth, but we have this community of white men that the racism is stronger than the classism. Well, the racism is part of the classism. Yes. They're yeah, in, yeah, they're yeah. in, in a, inex, um, inexorably linked. Yeah. Like they are what you can't, 
you can't separate the two. You can't, you know, um, there are a lot of, you know, talking about sort of the political situation of today, there's a lot of people who want to believe, like, you know, if you just uh, give everyone their just dues, then everything will simmer. But uh, yeah, the, you have yeah. to you have to fight it on on two spectrums or two two sides: the racism and the class politics, or the the corruption of capitalism are inexorably linked. And this is one of the best movies to I I think condemn that. Oh, I I agree, and I also think like for Scorsese. This is sort of a culmination of an entire body of work that that mm-hmm. interrogates Americana and the American dream. And this lines up very well with the Wolf of Wolf of Wall Street, which also lines up with Goodfellas, which also, uh, you know, has this uh interrogation of history that we've seen before with something like um gangs of new york like it, it feels like sort of the culmination of an entire body of work of looking at this idea of what the american dream is and how attainable it is and who it's attainable for and by And the violence that comes along with that. And I I, I think this is one of the more overt examples of him directly condemning it and making it obvious that he's condemning it. Yeah, there's there's something that it's a bit of an original sin story. Yeah, Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. And and also it, it covers the ground the you know. Uh, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I think is interesting about the performances, because I really want to get into that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Everybody right. is, <laughs> I mean, I think career bests for, uh, De Niro and DiCaprio. Again, this is so not the, the Leo that we usually see, you know, there's nothing cool about him. Like yeah, he's well, bumbling, well, like said, it, he's it, dim, it, he's weak, he's he's pathetic. But, but yes, but he doesn't realize that as a character. He in and I think that is incredibly difficult to pull off Mm. right how layered it is is he is weak and he is dim and he is sort of always in the disadvantage of every situation he's in but he thinks he's the smartest and the coolest and he thinks that he's getting away with this shit and it is uh an incredibly nuanced performance from DiCaprio. Uh, like, right. Well, th- as, a, that- as an actor, you, you have to, even if your character is absolutely despicable and unlikable, yeah. um, you have to play them sympathetically. And I think what he does really well here, specifically in the story between him and Lily Gladstone as Molly, his wife, is he 
is playing this conflict where he knows what he's doing is wrong, and he knows that what he's doing is murder, but he somehow feels like it doesn't apply to him. Like, their relationship yeah. is, for some reason, he is... He has well, managed to believe that it's different than what he's doing to everyone else. You can see the justification in his in his eyes, in his mind of like all these other people are doing that, but this is different because I love her. Yeah. Like you see you see that he has the idea of love. You see that he understands maybe uh, uh, you know what love is abstractly. Um, but none of his actions are that of someone who loves someone, right? Like right. everything he does is, and he has these moments, uh, these subtle moments where he talks about how he loves nothing more than money. And you, you see sort of the real guy there. You yeah. see where his interests actually align. Even though the character is unaware of it, and that is yeah, there's really nothing, incredible. There's nothing subtle about the messaging here. Um, even, no, but, even, but what even I'm if the, is, the performances are subtle. Yes, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is it's no, the messaging isn't subtle at all. But it takes good actors to sell that, right? Right. Like, yeah, because uh, you could easily just make him into some, you know, bucktooth racist villain. Vil yeah. like mustache twirling villain and nobody's doing that here and i think that is one of the things that is so insidious about this movie is it it sets him up to feel like a hero but every aspect of the story is telling you no he is not he is the villain of this story. He is undercutting every other character at every possible turn. He is a, he, he, he is loathsome. He is vile, but the movie sells you on his own justifications. The movie is viewpoint is manipulating the audience in a way that the story doesn't. And I think that is really cool. And you uh, have to believe that, that Lily Gladstone's character could fall in love with him. Well, you know, you, you have to okay. be convinced of his charm to an extent. I mean, if we also want to talk about performances, I feel like uh, in the script, she has sort of the least to work with, right? She has kind of the least amount of dialogue. A lot of the time, there is a chunk of the movie where her character is sort of um, uh, uh, waylaid. And she has to sell everything through her eyes and through her emotions and through it is such a physical and restrained performance that it is incredible like it, there's a reason everybody's talking about her for the oscars already like yeah it is so nuanced you can see that she wants to believe in this guy she mm -hmm. wants to believe in her husband but there's there's this hesitancy, this doubt, this thing in the back of her mind, and she has to sell all of that through a look. Yeah, it, it's this quiet power that she yeah. has in every scene where she's doing so much. By the way, we need a GIF on Twitter like yesterday 
of her telling uh, DiCaprio, "You talk too much." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure it exists, but uh, um, give give me a minute and I can make it. <laughs> no, she's fantastic in this movie. This is one of those performances, one of those like immediate star making performances. Where when I saw it, I was like, oh, I must have seen her in something. Like, she's so good. Obviously, she's been around. She's relatively new. She's done some indie, you know, a handful of indie films, some television. Uh, She's one of those actors that has had a hard time finding, you know, the roles. Yeah. And uh, apparently she was considering... Uh, retiring from acting and I, I think getting like her IT credentials or something and, and just moving out of the India, you, you know, similar to KQ Han, uh, who worked forever in the industry, sort of behind the scenes. And then all of a sudden they get this chance to show what they oh, can do. Fuck, they are incredible. Yeah. And yeah, she's, I, the, she's a linchpin. I mean, she's the soul of this movie. If oh, you, if, absolutely. If you didn't believe her or it was somebody who was just giving you less, you would, this would be a very impenetrable movie. But yeah. because she is so warm and so effervescent and again, just this, this powerful stoicism that uh you rarely see in performances i mean very often at all it's it's incredible how she can hold a scene without saying a word and mm. and it's a scene with leonardo dicaprio you know what i mean or like Robert one of the best actors yeah. of our generation and she can hold her own with no dialogue she yeah. can just sit there and you can feel it and it's Incredible. Yeah, and uh Robert De Niro as William Hale. The way he sinks his teeth into pure evil. Uh, again, this character doesn't think he's evil at all. This character is pragmatic and it is simply taking advantage of the situation. And to be able to portray that kind of evil with earnestness, without underselling it for the sake of melodrama that takes fucking talent like he is this poisonous cancer of a person but everything is justified in his mind everything is you you, you know he is an excel spreadsheet of a human and the numbers make all the justification for his actions that that he needs. There's lots of really, I mean, this movie's stacked with people. Jesse Plemons, of course, he shows up. He's <laughs> yes. like, I mean, this movie conjured him. Um, he played, right. and I, I, if <laughs> Scorsese, you know, if this isn't his last movie, if he keeps making movie, you know, I think. Um, he is, of course, a welcome addition to his uh, Scorsese repertoire of actors. Right. And there's a lot of non-actors in the movie. We talked about the tribe uh, tribunal when they're talking and 
Um, and they're condemning the murders and stuff. A, a lot of those guys were originally brought onto the film just as consultants for, to make sure they're getting the history right and their culture stuff right. And oh, then, shit. um, I was watching an interview with Scorsese where he was talking about how they were sort of just talking sort of off the cuff, like about the movie, like, mm-hmm. and they were sort of describing to the other actors what, how they see what was going on. And it was so compelling to Scorsese that he came back and he told them, can you say all that again? Just, you know, over here. And then, so I don't know if they eventually like scripted that or if that scene was primarily improvised, but goddamn, they were all fantastic. Oh yeah. I mean, there isn't a wink, a weak link in this movie. It is every performance is top notch. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, if you, I don't know how you can come out of this movie and not just sort of be floored by it. I liked it a lot. I liked it a whole lot. I'm, I'm feeling very A, A minus on it. And I, it could even go up. You know, in the coming months. Sure. Um, the only thing that I wasn't sure of was a kind of stylistic departure in the epilogue. But now I think it might be brilliant, but I, but oh, I almost I, need to see it again. I immediately was like, fuck yes. I was floored by the epilogue. I was like, the immediate summation of these events and the way it is so concisely given this spin that also condemns sort of current pop culture and the way we exploit uh sort of true crime and sensationalism and murder and and all of these salacious things that are very easy to exploit um because they you know it has a hook it has a, a a you know if it bleeds it leads kind of aspect to it and this movie does that it subverts itself it it immediately by the end of the movie looks at it and goes by the way, this is white people commenting on this genocide that has happened for hundreds of years in this country, and it is presented through that same lens. There isn't a real resolution. There isn't a real denouement. It's all presented from this aspect of sensationalism uh, that I jaw on the floor kind of right uh, i think i mean i think that's what i the conclusion i've come to with it i think yeah. initially while i was watching it i just thought he was trying to think of a more creative way of doing post credits no yeah uh, I, I can see that uh, yeah but it rather was so, than just having a black card with some text on it it was um, so jarring and deliberate though yeah. That I like it, it calls attention to itself that it, in a way that I was like, this is, this is a master doing a master work. Right. Yeah. Fuck it. I'm giving it an A plus. Yeah. I mean, 
this is kind of the movie to beat for me this year. I was like, I got from this what I feel like the rest of the world got out of Oppenheimer. Uh, Oppenheimer left me a little cold. And this, I just was like through the whole thing, like, oh, my God, this is fucking brilliant. This is literally like, how can Martin Scorsese still be peak? But right. he fucking is. He can still uh, knock it out of the ballpark. Just like, just like what, what De Niro does here. I mean, they're both exactly like pushing 80 and doing their best work yet. Yeah. Get the it's, fuck out of here. Like there, there is just a, even if, if not, even if you don't agree with anything else we said, there is a joy of seeing masters do master work. There is a joy in seeing these people still able to give it still able to to not phone it in it's not hacky in any way it is still like you, you know they all have something to say here and to like it's just incredible <laughs> that he's still going uh, that all of the you know him and de niro and just all of it came together in i what feels like a perfect storm in uh in a career of perfect storms yeah, and, you know, we didn't get into it much, but on a technical level, the movie looks great, um, shot on film. Some of the editing in this also is, is like... The editing is really, really good. There's some really creative long takes that, um, you know, Scorsese is really known for, but, you know, there's one in particular where there's a steady cam shot that goes all throughout this house. And you don't yeah. even realize that it's not cutting until you realize it. Um, well, and, and there's these strange elements of surrealism and horror as well with like mm-hmm. the owl and, and like the, these scenes of, uh, the burning scenes and just like, mm-hmm. uh, to me, it's just like it works on an artistic level. It works on a narrative level. It's yeah. three and a half hours long, but I, honestly didn't feel it like i i was never bored or like oh this needs to wrap up it, it like it uses that runtime efficiently mm-hmm. the music by robert e robertson this is his last score he just recently passed away um he's been oh, a long geez. collaborator with uh with scorsese but um and he is uh he could he is a native as well. I forget which uh community he comes from originally. <clears throat> but he's well known in the world of like blues and hard hard rock and stuff like that. I think they met on the last waltz. And he brings some like kind of something sort of modern, but also sort of believably historical as well to the score. Yeah, there there's an authenticity to the score. Yeah. Uh, the production design by Jack Fisk. Jack Fisk has been the man for production design for a long, long time. Um, ever since like, you know, I'm thinking like Badlands and Carrie and, you know, he, sure, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, everything I think is great. So yeah, it's, it's firing on all engines. I, I give this an A plus. It is just. Stunning, uh, a stunning achievement, I think. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to the segment that we had planned for this episode. Basically, the idea is we're going to play Video Store Clerk. Uh, the name of the game is If You Like, Then You'll Like. 
Um, we're going to pretend as though somebody comes to us with, you know, perhaps some of the younger, a little less seasoned in uh, horror in general. Um, and they say, you know, if I like blank, what would you recommend? So we'll start with you. Uh, I gave you two recommendations to, uh, or, or two movies to find recommendations for. What was yes. your first one? Uh, the first one you gave me was, I'll go with Get Out first. Um, okay. I, uh, yeah, so you give me Get Out as a challenge of if somebody's into Get Out, what else would they be interested in? I mean, you know, there's sort of obvious answers, I, I feel like, with um, something like Candyman or Stepford Wives. Um, but I wanted to try to avoid that. Um, so I had a couple of picks. Okay. Uh, my first one, I think my main pick is <clears throat> The Guest, uh, which we reviewed a... a I don't know, a while back, um, directed by Adam Wingard, starring Dan Stevens. Okay. And the reason I would recommend The Guest is it's sort of soft horror. Um, Like, Get Out is very conceptual. It's this idea of this sort of suburban horror, right, Mm -hmm. where... Um, you know, in Get Out, it is, uh, this guy who's going to meet his family for the first time. And there's sort of this sinister secret that he doesn't know about in the guest. It's, it's kind of the inverse of that where this sort of mysterious acquaintance comes and ingratiates himself with this family, but there's a sinister secret that he has uh, I also think it's very stylish um, and Get Out is kind of a horror comedy. There's a lot of humor in it. I feel like similarly with The Guest. Yeah, they came out kind of around the same time. I think uh, The Guest was 2014, I want to say. Get Out was, what, 2016, 2017? I think it was 2017. <clears throat> yeah, it, it could be, could have been. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'd say the guest is kind of underseen compared mm-hmm. to other Adam Wingard movies and compared to a lot of the movies, like indie horror that was coming out around that time. It was sort of that ramp up, up to get out and the 24 explosion. Um, but it's, it's good. There's also like a hefty amount of like, action in the movie, too. I'd say it's just as much an action movie as it is a horror film. So they're both sort of yeah. a genre hybrids of sorts. It's got some... It's got tension without necessarily being scary. And I, I feel similarly to the movie yeah. Get Out. Um, and then I had a second recommendation of something that's maybe a little scarier, something that is a little more horror, and I only just now realized it's the same director. Um, uh, but the other recommendation I would have for someone interested in Get Out is You're Next. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, it story wise is maybe a little more along the lines of Get Out. It's you know someone coming to meet this family and then uh, this sort of uh, dark situation unfolds around them. Uh, I literally did not realize it was there were both Adam Wingard until <laughs> right now. Yeah, Adam Wingard was uh, that was his bigger movie, I would say, of the two. Uh, the guest yeah. was technically his follow up, but again, kind of underseen. And and I think that's why I would recommend the guest first um, mm-hmm. is because I I feel like you're less likely that's less likely to sort of come up on a Google search, mm-hmm. um, whereas your next. I, I feel like the comparisons are a little easier to see. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, neither of these movies have the sort of, um, racial politics of Get Out. Um, and I do think that's significant. But, um, again, I was just kind of trying to think outside the box a little bit. Okay. All right. Um, one of the ones that you gave me to look up is The Conjuring, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, blossomed into a whole movie universe now. But I'm going to go with something sort of in the same genre, but didn't get as much love as The Conjuring. So my pick. For that was the movie Oculus, which came out in 2013, I believe. This was early Mike Flanagan. Um, This is before he started doing his shows on Netflix. This is uh, before his bigger movies. And this is, you know, definitely of the sort of the haunted house persuasion and the supernatural horror. You know, whereas in The Conjuring, you have Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are like demonologists who come in to clear a house. Um, in this movie, you have a brother and sister character who were tormented by something evil as when they were younger and as adults come back to the place to, to kill it, to take care of it once okay. and for all. And there's, it kind of goes in a little bit deeper as to like sort of like the family trauma that this evil represents. And there is even some sort of like question as to was there actually anything paranormal happening or was it their way of rationalizing, um, you know, a fucked up family situation? Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, you have uh, Karen Gillan in here. I actually have not seen Oculus. Um, I have been recommended it a few times and, and, um, yeah, it, I am a Mike Flanagan fan, so I should definitely check it out. I thought The Conjuring would be an interesting challenge because it was so popular, because it was so big, um, and because it spawned so many sort of I don't even want to say knockoffs because a lot of them are sort of within that same universe. This, the, the Ed and Lorraine Warren verse. Right. Um, uh, <clears throat> that I, I thought it might be challenging to find something outside of that box. Um, 
but yeah, Oculus is one that has been on my list for a while. I should definitely check it out. Yeah, so, you know, I tried to think of maybe something more directly comparable. Like, obviously, the antecedents of The Conjuring is, like, the poltergeist it's, mm-hmm. and The Shining. And, uh I mean, technically, it's a prequel to Amityville Horror. Yeah. Um, but I, rather than going that route with the, like the seventies and eighties, also there's a decent amount of exorcist in there as well. But rather sure. than just going that route and something a little more obvious, I, I feel like kind of like the guest, Oculus was sort of underpraised, underseen at the time. In fact, I think yeah. it kind of got shit on a little bit when it came out. Like people didn't quite get it, but I feel like if it came out now, in yeah, now that Bloomhouse is a much bigger thing. It also with Mike Flanagan's <clears throat> increasing popularity with his Netflix shows, it would not surprise me if a lot of his work um gets sort of a reappraisal within the next couple of years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But this is a good one. Um I'm cool. I I really like the the mechanics of it. It's not the scariest thing in the world. I think probably The Conjuring is a scarier movie if you're just looking for, you know, jump scares and fear and that kind of, and dread. I feel like this movie has a bit more of a, you know, there's a hero story there because they're going to take down this thing. I feel like that's kind of Mike Flanagan, though, right? Like, I think he can, I mean, and I don't want to discount him. He can absolutely deliver mm-hmm. scares. Mm-hmm. But I, I, one thing that I appreciate about him as an artist is mm-hmm. it's never scare first. It's always sort of like, how can I scare you with these elements? How can I build this into a scare? It's It's never just about making people jump out of their seats. Right. It's always story forward. And yeah. he's and uh you know, he's obviously very influenced by Stephen King. And I think um this movie in particular was sort of a reworking of uh, his original adaptation he planned on doing for 1408 and then he mm. wasn't able to do it and the movie came out on its own and so he kind of retooled it to be Oculus. Um, but there's other elements like it, you can see some elements of that, that in there. And, um, but yeah, I would say people who are a fan of supernatural horror of the last, you know, of the bloom house variety, um, should check out Oculus. Cool. The other challenge you gave me was hostile, which I thought was particularly interesting because you know, I hate that movie. (laughs) Um, I am not a fan of Hostel. I, I, even Eli Roth's work, I think it is his most derivative and his most base. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, I don't necessarily dislike Eli Roth, but I do dislike Hostel. So it was hard for me to think of like, what is a movie that's like Hostel? that I could in good conscience recommend um, because literally hostile 
is one of the movies that kind of turned me off of horror in the early 2000s. Uh, it, it was sort of the start of the, uh, uh, air quotes torture porn phase of movies, uh, between that and Saw, um, which relied heavily on, on sort of showcasing this kind of, you know, depraved what the fuck gore effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was trying to think of again what's what's a less obvious movie that isn't directly related or directly descendant of Hostel. And the movie I came up with, uh I, I have a couple recommendations. Uh the my main recommendation is called Would You Rather? This is oh, a you horror- know what? I never saw that, but I remember it coming out. Okay, so I <laughs> Watched this on a whim, um, probably five or six years ago. Yeah. Uh, because, because at the time I was very into the podcast comedy bang bang and they mm-hmm. do a segment called would you rather? And it, it, it is kind of a fun improv game that you can play with people. And Ashley found this movie called would you rather? And at the time it was like, well, we have to watch this now. I don't think this is a great movie. Um, it's not, I don't think it's on the same caliber of the guest or your next, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, and it, it, I think kind of approaches similar thematic elements to Hostel in a less gross way, in a way that is more palatable. Um, it's, it's sort of campy. Like, I think this movie could become a cult classic kind of thing if it finds its audience. I think it kind of um, has. Has it? Okay. I, I hear about it every now and then. Not often, but every once in a while it comes up. I mean, it's starring, you know, it's starring Brittany Snow, who, uh, we would, who has, a bit more of a career, but still in the horror genre with stuff like X, mm. uh, Jeffrey Combs, who is, uh, a longtime Stuart Gordon collaborator, um, Sasha Gray, uh, famous porn star from around the time that this movie was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, came out. So it has sort of that cult classic recipe. Um, it has similar themes of classism and sort of like what money can buy you that Hostel has. Uh, but with, I think, a less ugly approach, it's a little sillier. It has a little more fun with it. Um, and it's just a little more watchable. I mean, uh, I, I, again, I just think Hostel is sort of a miserable experience. But I think if you enjoy Hostel, there is stuff that you would enjoy out of this there, you know, it has similar elements to saw and, um, that just this idea of you're put in this sort of unwinnable situation and, uh, uh, there's ludicrous violence that occurs because of it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a fun time. It's not, brilliant it's not going to change anybody's life but uh i would rather 
watch Would You Rather than Hostel. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, the last one you gave me was the Blair Witch Project. Now, I thought you gave this to me because I recently tweeted something out, and this is kind of the direction I decided to take it. I said mm. uh, that, you know, for all the praise that the Blair Witch Project gets for its innovations in the found footage genre, which is undeniable, nobody really talks about it as being sort of proto-mumblecore, because... Yeah. uh it's all there. Like, you know, it's, it's low budget. It's, it, it, there's a lot of improvisation. I mean, there's almost a lot of, all the dialogue is improvised. The, the mm-hmm. actors are kind of given a loose outline of what's supposed to happen per scene, but they, they sort of get to, you know, there's an interaction with the crew that's very, uh, natural. So I went up. Uh, more forward into Mumblecore proper, um, with the Duplass brothers, uh, I want to say it's their second feature, Baghead, which is sort oh, of a okay. horror comedy that they put out, um, uh, starring, uh, Steve Zissus, uh, who was in their television show. If you remember that one, the one with Melanie Linsky, I forget the name oh, of it now. Oh, yes. I, he also was in, um, something I saw very recently. I can't remember what it was. Uh, oh, uh, he, he was in the Haunted Mansion remake. Oh. Um, <laughs> as a very brief thing, but, um, he's so good at, in togetherness on yes. HBO that yeah. I would love to see him in more stuff. And a very, very young, uh, Greta Gerwig, when she was getting her start. Okay. Uh, um, this is about a, a group of friends, filmmakers, who they are jealous because one of their peers has a film premiere at a, at a small festival and he was able to get his thing made. And so they decide, okay, let's get it together. We're going to go off to this cabin in the woods. We're going to brainstorm. And try and think of something fun that we can do together. We're not going to leave until we have an idea. And at which point they start uh, seeing a home invader with a bag mask, a paper bag over his head. And they're not sure if it, one of them is playing a prank or not. And they're... Mm. they're their paranoia starts to build up and it, it kind of plays, uh, both angles as a, you know, the, the typical sort of mumblecore love triangle complication story. And then also this, uh, uh, home invasion thriller that may or may not be occurring or may or may just be a manifestation of their jealousies and their issues. Going I mean, you've sold me that that also kind <laughs> of reminds me of uh, the movie we reviewed. I don't remember what year, but um, uh, the scare me 
Um, yeah, a little kind bit of like idea that. of like yeah. what's real and what's not, and how how far is this going to go in this sort of isolated element? Um, mm-hmm. No, I'm very interested in this now. Yeah, it's it, you know it's funny. Um, it's certainly not as again not as scary as Blair Witch is trying to be. Although I think. However many years later, 25 years later, Blair Witch is really not all that scary anymore. It's more of a novelty now, if you're looking at it with fresh eyes. I I mean, I recently saw Blair Witch Project for the first time, Mm -hmm. and I was actually pretty impressed with how, I mean, it's definitely a mood piece. The world building is totally strong. Yeah, and it's not jump scare heavy, but... Um, it, it does create this sense of dread that I feel like not a lot of horror movies can pull off. Right, and, and you have to, you also have to put your your perspective into 1999. A lot of people didn't know if it was real or not because they had oh, never absolutely. seen a a found footage film before. I mean, half of the movie was the marketing of that movie, right? And, you know, the, the weird aspect ratio and all of that stuff going into it. But if you kind of take that movie and then, um, play it a bit more for the, the interpersonal dynamics of the group, which Blair mm-hmm. Witch does a lot of too. Like I said. Oh yeah. I, I mean, that I, movie's that's... like this close to just being a mumblecore film. You're not wrong. I mean, <laughs> I did see you tweet that, but that was not why I recommended this movie for you. But, uh, but yes, I mean, you're right. Like it's all about because there's not, there is this sort of supernatural horror element, but most of the movie is about how these relationships break down once they're in a, a, a situation, a situation. sort of, yeah. yeah, out there control. Right. And, you know, Baghead would sort of ramp up to more overtly horror adjacent Mumblecore films like Creep and um, the early Ty West stuff and even Adam Wingard coming out of that group going on to making their movies like the VHS films and stuff like that. I was I was gonna say, did you have you seen Creep? Have we talked about Creep? We 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 saw the first one for the podcast, yeah, a while a while ago. Still haven't seen part two, which I maybe I'll do that this weekend. Oh, you should do it. Um, I yeah, not to say too much about it, but I think it is it is consistent with the first one. If you liked the first one, I think you'll like Creep too. It 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 I think it has an interesting twist and take uh, that. Sets up a similar situation, but with a a whole new sort of spin on it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go ahead and finish up with our review of One Cut of the Dead, and I will let you sum that up. Okay, this one's going to be a little tricky to set up because I don't uh, – before – before we get into this review, before I even get up into the setup, I think this is the type of movie that the less you know about it, going into it, the better. True. Um, so, yeah, because there are, there are some twists, there are some turns, but essentially, 
This is about uh, this is about the making of a movie of a zombie movie, a low budget Japanese production. Yeah, where in an actual zombie attack takes place during the production, and then we get sort of a behind the scenes look of that production. Yes. Um, I, I mean, there, okay, there's absolutely no way to talk about this movie without giving away the big reveal. Yeah. So if, if you have not seen One Cut of the Dead, I do highly recommend going into it as cold as possible. I recommend uh, no. that as well. Yes. Yeah. So pause this, go watch it, come mm. back, listen to the rest of our review. It's 90 minutes. You can get through it really easy. Um, and it's a fun watch. Like it yeah, is, it's on Shutter. Uh, I believe it's a Shutter original, which means it's probably on one of the Prime channels as well. If you have that, but um, I don't think I, I don't think it was originally produced by Shutter. I think they. No, just, I think they bought the rights. Yeah, yeah, the American rights. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So we're gonna get into it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So Ooh. now that we've got that out of the way, I will set it up for real. Uh, I mean, sort of the first act of this movie is the presentation of this movie where they're making a movie and an actual zombie attack happens while they are making the movie. Right. And then we peel away the layer to see that this was a production of a movie of them making a zombie movie where a zombie attack happens during the movie. And that's kind of when the real movie starts. Right. So I had a funny experience watching this movie because I also did. Uh, okay. I, I yes. started it on, on shutter and I was watching it and Watching the first third of it, you know, it's super grainy, super low budget. It, the gimmick is all one cut, right? So we've talked about Scorsese's long takes. This is all one long take, um, in sort of that Birdman rope kind of style. Uh -huh. Um, the, the, the acting isn't the best. There's some moments when you're like, what the fuck is happening? Okay, all right. I guess it's all one take. So sure, right. it's this low budget zombie thing. Yeah. So I was watching it, and I got about I'm about 15 minutes in, and I'm like, I don't know if this is doing much for me. Like you know, like <laughs> I did the same. Good thing. for them for getting a thing made, but I feel like I'm sort of done with this already, and. This didn't need to be 90 minutes. It feels like a college project. Like, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's like, kind of screechy not... and annoying. And I, you know, and, well, and at this point of... in my life, do I really need to see somebody's shitty zombie movie? Well, and <laughs> there, there's so many like scenes of like, of these sort of extended uh, attack scenes that aren't shot super well. And you're like, get it, this is one take, but, like, and I get that this is low budget, and there's, you know, small cast. Yeah. But, like, really, what is, 
like, why do so many people talk so well about this movie? Well, I didn't even know so many. All I knew was Ted, and I was I was feeling bad, almost like I'm gonna have to shit on this, and like we don't get <laughs> recommendations very often. Kind of, I get it, but I don't get it. Yeah, like well, like it, there is something kind of novel about it, but it's not good. Um yeah. and it, it kind of felt I don't like need watching, this. <laughs> uh, uh, if anyone's familiar, it kind of felt like watching like sort of early trauma stuff. Like there's some stuff that's like, is this funny because it's intentional or is this funny because it's like done poorly? Right. And then when the 36 minute, uh, yes, line cuts and we start seeing credits, I'm like, it's over already. And then I look and I'm like, no, there's still an hour. Like, what the hell else are they gonna do? And then we it peels away that that layer where now we're showing it says like you know a month uh yeah a month prior and we see so them the, the, casting. We see the actual movie is about the making of, of the, the movie, movie that we just watched. Right. So it, it it's this, this fun kind of genre exercise where they sort of deconstruct this one take. Uh, uh, zombie film and all of the things that you were thinking, oh, that wasn't done (laughs) very well, or uh, like, why are they doing that? Or this isn't as funny as they think it is. And like, all of that, all of my criticisms were addressed in the second half of the film when you see the making what the, what of the, the movie within movie. the movie. The movie is about the making of this movie. Right. And I, I literally, there was a moment where I literally just was like, damn it, they got my ass. Yeah, they, <laughs> they totally did. Yeah. And, um, it's act, there's actually some like charming stuff in here. There's a, yeah. there's a father daughter story that sneaks up on you. Um, well, well, there's a point where once you see the, the <laughs> movie, and then they introduce you to the story behind the movie. That's when you get the real movie. And there's these character interactions and dynamics. And, like, there's an immediacy to it. Yeah. Whereas the beginning, you're like, okay, I kind of guess. Sure, I get what it's very gimmicky, but I guess. But then... You get multiple cuts, you get multiple angles, you get coverage, you get actual dialogue, you get characters that are actually sort of, you know, well-written and developed, and you see how, like, you see the ramp up to this final product, and then they show you the filming of that product from angles that you didn't see before, but there's these character uh dynamics that you weren't aware of that yeah yeah the, there's a there's only a couple movies i can think of that kind of do something similar i mean not with the same conceit but with that same idea of like this part doesn't make sense now but it will later and it's okay. usually done through time travel like low budget time travel sure, i believe yeah. there was some stuff like that in the movie primer and then there was also that movie Time Crimes. Because this story does play with time in a yeah. way. It's like you see the product and then you see the making of the product. You see the behind the scenes after 
the thing that you just saw. And I also appreciate, like, they present it in a way that you see the perspective of the people who paid for the thing as well. And... Right, and because part of this is, is a, supposed to be. It's supposed to be a live broadcast, so they can't cut. Once they start rolling, whatever have whatever they get, they get. So yeah. if if somebody, uh, you know, one of the actors is drunk and can't get it on it <laughs> on his mark on time or whatever, you it'll show you know outside of the the perspective of the film. It'll show grips and stuff holding cue cards saying, just keep going, improvise, improvise, improvise. Yeah, there, there's an element of this that feels more stage production mm-hmm. than, than movie production because typically in a movie you have the, uh, you know, you have the ability to cut, you have the ability to edit. In this case, it's a live production. So it's, it's similar to a theatrical production, you know, where there's stage managers and there's people trying to sort of coordinate and cover and and make it work, even if it's not what all the rehearsals indicated or Ooh. what the script indicates. The final product is the thing that you're seeing live. Right. And Birdman did do a little bit of that, although it wasn't like as concerned with that ultimately. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, I think by and large, it's kind of just a genre exercise, but a really fun one. And I really yeah. liked the, the puzzle box nature of it. And I thought that it was pretty clever. And once you understand why they're doing the things they're doing, it's it's actually pretty funny. Oh, I agree. I, at the beginning, it was like, I get this as kind of a comedy, but I just don't know if all the jokes are landing. But once that veil is lifted, once you realize what the movie is, I was like, oh, this is a real movie. And the jokes, you're not meant to get them for another 45 minutes. Yeah. Which is just kind of structurally yeah. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the type of thing that I could see doing really well at a festival. Because sure. the way it kind of p- plays around with your expectations. I could see, but also on a streaming network... I think this is a little harder because you you really have to stick with it for the first 30 minutes. Yeah. You really have to go through that initial journey and then once once the the lens widens and you're opened up to what the world actually is, it, it it's so fun and rich and there's so many jokes that you didn't get for the last Half hour. Right. And which is why I think it's probably smart for them to go with shutter. Cause I feel like a genre audience, specifically a horror audience is going to be more patient when the movie is yeah. purposely not good. The, you know, usually your, your gore hounds and stuff, they're going to just sit through it and just to say they've seen it. Sure. Um, yeah. whereas if this were on Hulu or something, 
yeah, you'd probably get a lot more people just being like, well, this is dumb, and change it after 10 minutes. Yeah, and and it, it really rewards you really have to see the whole thing. Like, yeah. that, that's what I think is cool about it is I, I feel like everybody who's seen this movie probably had a similar experience of like, what the fuck are we kind of watching here? Right. And then, oh, as soon as the, the camera pulls out and you see this is a real movie, mm-hmm. th- there's sort of a relief to that. Right. And all of the actors, not for nothing, even though they're in service of something that's sort of mechanical in, in, uh, premise, um, mm-hmm. they have to give like three performances in one because they have to yeah. play the real world version of themselves. They yeah, have to, they have play, to play the, the actor move. playing the script, playing the script. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. They have, to, they have to play the actor, uh, struggling to do the movie and then they have to play their own the character that they were hired to be in this fake movie the the guy who plays the actual director mm-hmm. um i think in particular delivers a a very charming warm performance i mean everybody does everybody sort of has to be game with the concept um but he he's sort of um glues it all together. Yeah, and this was uh, directed by Shinichiro Ueda. Uh but you get a lot of fun personalities in here. You get one guy who's a a preening movie star who wants to change the script and everyone's mm-hmm. telling him this is live, we can't change the script. <laughs> and then you have a pop star who's who's uh you know, trying to do her best in being in the zombie movie, and you, you have an aging actor who's also an alcoholic, right? Uh, uh, and then um, the director who sort of has to fill these extra roles as they, you know, as situations present themselves, uh, and his wife who sort of also has to fill in, Ooh. and uh, their daughter who. Also was, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of fun character dynamics here that, again, uh, like you said, I went on a journey with this movie. For the first, ha- you know, half hour, I was kind of taking it for granted and was like, you don't know if I'm going to get much out of this. Right. And then there is such a more rich story uh, and a lot more comedy than you realize. Right. Yeah. Um, so that is the episode, and if uh, anybody has anything to say about any of the things we talked about in this episode or previous, you can uh, message us on social media at Twitter and Instagram, um, or you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. We're searchable on most social media under mcguffinpod. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel where the video version of the podcast is uploaded usually within a few days before or after the audio podcast. Uh, you can find us under MacGuffin Pod. There's three different MacGuffin Podcasts, uh, YouTube right now, but we're just MacGuffin Pod. You'll see our videos in the thumbnail or our faces in the thumbnails. 
And you want to follow us on Letterboxd. We're on there as well. Um, and be sure to leave us a star rating and a one-sentence review on whatever podcast app you use to listen to the show. Uh, iTunes or Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. Good pods. I know some people like to use that. Um, and you can follow me individually at VC Cassidy on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I also started my own letterbox because there's certain things I couldn't do on the podcast letterbox that I wanted to be a little bit more interactive with. So I just started logging what I'm watching there. Um, also linking back to my reviews that I write for the Idaho State Journal. So you can find that at Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment or Idaho State Journal, uh, movie reviews. And you'll see the review archives. And be sure to read the reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. I guess I'm also on Letterboxd. I don't really think about that one as much. Um, and if you would like to see me perform live comedy, come check out a show at MockingbirdImprov.org. Uh, I am a part of the show's Lyrics and Laugh and Improv versus Stand Up. Everybody have a happy Halloween. Can you find the wolves in this picture? Bye.